Welcome to my Solo 401k Financials podcast. We're excited today that we have as our guest, Roger St. Pierre, who's going to talk to us about non-recourse financing. Roger is a, is a senior vice president at First, First Western Federal Savings Bank in South Dakota. And I know this is a topic that is of great interest to our customers and people who follow us on our website. So thank you so much for joining us, Roger. Um, appreciate thank it. You. Thank you, George. It's very good to be with you today and, and all of your clients and potential clients. Um, I'm always happy to share my knowledge and spread the word about non-recourse lending and its availability in this market and how it can help investors leverage some of their monies they have in their retirement plans. As a touch of background, First Western Federal Savings Bank has been a portfolio lender for over 40 years. We have always kept all our loans we've made on our own books, and we've never sold a loan. And in, we've always been an investor bank. And in 2008, we saw a very good opportunity in the non-recourse world to lend to self-directed IRAs, solo 401k plans. And Great. we have, have focused our energy, and I have really focused my time in the last decade uh, building our brand in this area, uh, becoming well-known as a nationwide lender for solo 401ks that are investing in real estate and wanting to leverage purchases. So we have a broad experience. We have a great service team. We service all of our loans. So all your escrows and things like that with the loan, a person or a client can call at any time. And within five minutes, they can find out the status of their loan, their escrow account, where they're at. And and I think that that's a, something that we pride ourselves in, in that we're a fairly small bank. We can be very responsive to clientele. And I believe that's what sets us apart from other non-recourse lenders in the space is our, our agility to move quickly, our ability to make quick uh, decisions. I'm the decision maker on the loan, so I don't have a loan committee that I have to bring the loan past for approval. Oh, so great. Very efficiently, yes. So um, to give you uh, some information, I'll start with my disclosure slide. We're not an accountant or CPA, so we're not qualified to provide advice on IRA rules or eligibility requirements. And so just be sure you consult your tax and investment advisors before making any investments. So the big question of the day is, what is a non-recourse loan? And how can this loan help you as an investor grow your real estate portfolio. A non-recourse loan is simply a loan that's secured entirely by the collateral. In this case, a mortgage or deed of trust on the rental real estate, wherever that may be. And in the event of uh, the default, client can't pay the payments, it, it really goes far behind and ultimately we have to foreclose. The only thing we can do as a bank is foreclose on the property, take the property back, and sell it, and hopefully we're gonna get enough money to pay the loan balance off. But however, if we don't get enough money, hey, we're out, we lose. Right. Uh, that's, that's the nature of the non-recourse world. And, and the IRS set the rules up many, many years ago, actually back in 1976, to say that if a 401k investor did take out 
some debt against the property. It must be a non-recourse loan. And they did that to protect the owner of the account. They didn't want banks and lending institutions coming after the actual owner of the account when in reality, the borrower is the trust, not the person. So that's a, a big difference between these kinds of loans and a regular mortgage that someone may, may take out through their bank or right. mortgage broker. Let me ask you a question, Roger. The, on the prior slide, it talks about default. And maybe you're going to yes. talk about that as we go through this, but is there a standard time period that would count as a default? I would say this, George. A loan would have to get out there to at least 90 days past due, at least three months past due. And in trying to work with that borrower over time, I mean, I, if I have a client who goes past due on their loan, even 15 days, I reach out and communicate. So if there's a problem or issue, we want to know what that is. Sometimes it's just a matter that maybe an ACH payment out of a bank account wasn't done correctly and, and sure. the, the, the account didn't pull the payment. I see that a lot, especially on new loan setups. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes uh, issues like that happen. So communication's key. And we right. try to stay on top of that with our clients so that things don't get to the point of 90, 120 days past due. Normally, things are resolved within 30 days, and, and we don't have a lot of delinquency in this realm. But again, in the odd case where there was a, a major default, say renters couldn't pay, they moved out, maybe they trashed the house, uh, it just became a, a disaster, and ultimately the the owner of the trust couldn't pay the tab, then we foreclose and take the property back. The right. difference in these kinds of loans, though, is that does not impact the person's credit or personal credit history. See, we don't report these loans to the credit bureau because they're not the person's loans, they're the trust's loans. And so if there is a default, it doesn't get reported under that taxpayer's personal taxpayer ID number anyhow. So it truly is a non-recourse loan and, and it should be treated as such. And, and exactly. as a side note, when, when let's say an investor is going to go borrow money, uh, personally, a lot of people are buying other investments personally, they should not report a non-recourse loan to their trust on their financial statement that they may turn into a mortgage broker because that's not their obligation. It's the obligation of their trust. And so it, it really needs to have some clarity there so that people, people's credit and people's uh, debt to income ratios are not impacted by these kinds of loans. It makes total sense. I could, be, I could have good credit, I could have terrible credit. It's really not even relevant. It's relevant to the extent, George, that we do in the very last thing in our underwriting poll, the trustee of the trusts or the owner of the self-directed IRA entity, we pull their personal credit for this reason. We view how somebody pays their personal obligations is going to be very indicative of how they pay their trust obligations. And so, although we don't look at a credit score, we just look at credit history. Did this person, he or she, 
did this person he or she does they do they pay their bills on time it's a good indicator if they if they pay their bills on time we can probably assume they're going to pay their self-directed trust bills on time if they don't pay their bills on time there's probably reasons for that how does that impact so we try to get at the root of maybe some of those issues that were derogatory i know that many investors back in the 08, 09, 010 lost some properties and had some dings on their credit. We understand that. And as long as there's a good explanation for the delinquencies or derogatories on the credit, we can still work with that borrower. That's not a deal killer just because they have some dings on their credit. So people need to understand that, again, it's not them borrowing the money, but we do look at their histories. That makes a lot of common sense. And it goes back to what you were saying about the fact that First Western Federal Savings services the loan, so you can really take that big picture, long-term view, and be in contact with the, with the trustee, you know, the trustee of the borrower. Yes. And so it's not that it's some anonymous serving company that's uh, following up for payment and things like that. No, we're very involved with our borrowers, very involved with these trustees of the trust. We want them to be successful because if they're successful, it's just going to follow on that we're going to be successful. So, um, makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. so um, go ahead. Do you have a, anything to add at this juncture, George, or another question? No, I'll let you get some momentum going. Thanks for yeah. shedding light well, that's, context. You bet. Um, so what kinds of entities, again, back when the self-directed and uh, rules were set up by Congress and Treasury back in the 70s, um, basically they provided that any self-directed retirement plan, whether it's a self-directed IRA or a solo 401k or a solo 401k trust or Maybe there's an LLC and the 401k is a member in that LLC. We can write uh, non-recourse loans to all those entities. The main thing is that they're a self-directed retirement plan. And what kind of properties are eligible for financing? We'll finance basically anything that throws off recurring rental revenue. So in that case, on residential properties, that can be single family, multis, one to four family, five units plus. Um, condos, apartments. We do commercial buildings, offices, warehouses, um, a 10-unit apartment, for example. Anything over five units in the residential space is considered commercial, and we'll lend on those apartment buildings, offices. Vacation, um, Airbnb. Vacation rentals. You bet. And under the residential part, um, we'll do both long-term tenanted properties where the investor has, let's say, a year lease with the tenant. Mm -hmm. And we'll also do VRBO and Airbnb properties. And uh, we can get into that just a little bit later in the, in the presentation, George, on maybe some Sounds of the, the ins and outs of those kinds of properties, because they're a little bit different animal to some degree than okay. the straight long-term lease. Um, but the key is in all of this is, the person's not paying the loan back. And in reality, to, to a large degree, their solo trust isn't really paying the loan back. It's the property that pays the loan back. 
So what we look for is properties that throw off recurring revenue because that's, that's paying our loan back. So whether that's a residential, commercial, even an ag property, we do have some investors who are familiar and comfortable with ag properties. They'll go buy a, a tract of farm ground. They'll lease it out to an ag producer, say at 20 grand a year, or whatever the going rate is for that kind of acreage. As long as that egg land is throwing off recurring revenue, we can mm. lend on it. So, so, so basically any kind of property, it has to be deeded. The property ultimately gets deeded into the name of the trust and that's the collateral and that's what's going to pay the loan back. Um, so you say, well, what, how do I qualify? And I get that one all the time because you know, people, they go into their local mortgage lender or broker when they're going to go buy their own houses and they say, Hey, let me get a prequal letter. I want to go out and buy a couple of properties. And you know, the first thing the mortgage lender will do is said, well, here, give me a financial statement. Let's see your tax returns. We'll run credit and then we'll give you a prequal letter for so much money. In this world, it's, it's completely different. A, as I just mentioned, it's not about the person. They're not borrowing the money. And although their entity is borrowing the money, it's really all about the property. So, so what drives the deal? What would qualify the deal? It's the cash flow and the condition of the property. And so we look for, uh, I, I essentially look for three things, but one, does the entity have the cash? Well, what do we mean by cash? Well, in this world, larger down payments are the norm. Since the bank has no recourse to collect the debt from a borrower if there's a default, we wanna to try to make sure that there's as few defaults as possible and therefore we're gonna ask for a 40 to 50% down payment in most cases, 40% across the board. Uh, that's typical for a single family, one to four family residential with a long-term lease. If someone's gonna buy a similar property and has a, a vacation rental, 50% down is the norm. So think in terms of 40 to 50% down payment and having the closing costs in your plan, which is, you're gonna see closing costs very similar to any other uh, mortgage loan that you've taken out on any kind of investment property lately. It's, it's very similar. So you need the money for the down, the closing costs, and then we need to see some money in there for reserves. And what I mean by that is, you know, when Joe the plumber comes over and hands you a plumbing bill for $1,500, for a new water heater for that rental property, you can't just hand Joe your debit card or write him a check. Right. You can't, you can't pay him with personal money. That $1,500 bill has to come out of the trust. So we wanna make sure that you leave some liquidity in there. And by liquidity, I mean that, that money can be cash, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, any liquid asset class. But there needs to be liquidity in that account so that to pay for repairs. Or let's mm -hmm. say a tenant moved out and you've got to do a little bit of make ready expenses and there's maybe 45 days till a new tenant comes in. Well, our loan payment's still going on. So you still have to have money to pay that. So that's where that 15% comes in. And when you think about it, it's just basically common sense. You need to have a pool of operating monies to run this investment. And 15% seems to be a decent number. So example, if we have a $100,000 loan, we'll want to see 15% of the loan amount or 15,000 left in the account. I normally tell people, if you're going to buy a property, you should probably have around 55 to 
of the purchase price in your account to make it work from the money side. Got it. Okay. The second thing then, and as, as important or more so is, is the cash flow going to be solid enough to pay all the expenses like taxes, insurance, management, and still have enough money to pay the loan payment? So I'll get into this in a minute in a little more detail, but we only want to finance properties that have positive cash flow because there again, the investor can't make up the difference on a payment out of their own pocket. And we right. don't want to make, make up, trying to make up the difference if there's a rental shortfall. So we want the property itself to support the whole deal. Just so follow your ratio, right? There is a ratio and I'll get to that shortly, but that will, it's a measuring stick on how you measure if a property is going off positive cash flow or if it isn't. Yeah, so, I get the concept though. Yeah, that makes sense. There's enough money coming in to make those loans. Uh-huh. That's right. And, 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 you know, to pay the property manager if there is one and, you know, maybe there is Joe the plumber who comes along every now and then and has a plumbing expense or an electrician or so on. You got to have some money there. Before, we, is, before go we go to number three, let's go back up to one. Let's yep. say that um, I need to put more money, I need more money in my retirement account. Okay. So if you have a solo 401k, the contribution limits can be very high. Like theoretically, you could get as much as 57,000 or 63,500, for example, for 2020. Um, so if somebody, say, doesn't have enough money in their account and they could justify a relatively large contribution, like let's say they need to put another 30,000 into the account in order to satisfy what's needed to get a non recourse loan, is there um, some type of seasoning? requirement do you think the bank would want to see would you have to wait like 30 days 60 days before you could close? no that money as long as it's collected funds funds good we can use it and here's another one um sometimes investors they might be working with you george on getting their plan set up and all ready to go but maybe it isn't completely funded yet and maybe they still have some money in an old, old 401k or an IRA with an old employer that they're going to move in there. Right. Um, and they want to make a purchase. But, you know, maybe it's a week, 10 days yet till that money is liquidated and transferred. We can still work with that borrower on a deal. All we need to see is that they have the funds over here in, you know, maybe a previous plan, a Schwab, a Fidelity plan and they're going to move it over, that's fine. Just show me the money. Give me Got an account it. statement yep, from okay. the other one and, and with your intent that we're moving it, and we're good. We can work with that if it isn't already sitting in the account. And we do that pretty frequently because a lot of deals, as you know, timing is of the essence, and getting a property under contract, sometimes you don't have a lot of time to, to try to get stuff done ahead of time, although it's highly desirable to have it already funded and ready to go. But in the case that it's not quite there yet and you're working on the plan, we can still work. Right. Like you said, it's totally, it's different than if you're shopping for a home for yourself. Usually the, I think the idea is that you go figure out what your budget is and then you go look for homes. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, it sounds like you want to find the property of then you get the loan based on the property because it's based on the cash flow. It's based on all the, it's all about the property. 
it, it really is all about the property. And the third thing down there, is it located in a good area and is it rent ready? One of the things that we do, and I know investors look at, but we really look at is crime. Um, okay. You can fix a lot of things on a property, but you can't fix crime, okay? So maybe there's some carpeting that's not so good and appliances, hey, a little bit of money fixes that. But if it, the property is in a, a, in a high crime area, that can't be fixed and will highly impact that. Are there property. Tools? And we don't want to lend on a property that's going to be a, a problem. So again, if I was to have one caveat, and you'll see here in a couple of minutes, some deals that, or ideas that can derail a deal and high crime is one of them. And I don't want to dwell on it too much right now, but, but location is the property close to good schools. Is there jobs nearby? So that the tenants, there's a high, you want a property with where the, the tenant has uh, access to services, jobs, schools, and amenities so that you have a, a good supply of tenants. So location, you know, I guess in real estate, the old saw location, location, location is really important that way. Um, but we also want to know other than location, is a rent ready? Is it ready to go or is it nearly ready to go for a renter? If it is, good, we'll lend on it. If it's a fixer that needs twenty, thirty thousand worth of work, sorry, we won't lend on it. That's we leave that to the fix and flip people or someone else, maybe to go buy that property. Although I will say this, we have been doing a lot of cash out refinances of properties that people have bought over the years, fixed up, and they have them as a nice running rental for their retirement plan. We can lend on them now that they're renting and they're all up to snuff. It's just we can't lend on them when they're in a pre-rentable condition. So that's just uh, kind of a fact. We want to, because we'll close a loan on a property that's never been a rental. And to that point, a lot of properties that investors are buying are seller-occupied. They're owner-occupied. They've never been a rental before. And you know what? That's fine. We'll still lend on them. All we ask is that they're rent-ready or nearly so. And... Uh, so condition there, is really critical. Do you have are a, there metrics on that, Roger? Like yeah, example, there are, and I'll like get to those uh, momentarily. But I guess I'll throw one metric around it right now, and that is as long as the property doesn't need more than $10,000 worth of work to be rent ready, then typically it's good. So maybe it needs some interior repaint and some flooring and some appliances, and it's ready to go for six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000. Fine. Mm -hmm. We can lend on it. We'll lend. We'll work with the investor to lend the acquisition money, the fix-up money. That's for the investor to get tidied up, you know, in that first month after they buy it. We have two parameters on timelines to think about, and that's this: if we're lending on a property and it's not quite rent ready at the time, we'll require that it be so within 60 days of closing, it now is rent ready. So that gives the investor two months to do any tidy up work. And we want a copy of the lease within 90 days. So there again, I think that that's a fairly liberal underwriting policy and that it's never had to be in a rental before, doesn't have to have a renter in it. We close the deal, just get us a copy of the lease within 90 days of close and then we're good. Got it, okay. Um, and so then, Timing, um, we talk about 
generally real estate transactions, how long do they take? Our loans, our decisioning is very quick. I'm the underwriter. I'll work directly with the investor and normally I could get a loan decision in 24 to 48 hours. And then if it's yes, we collect an appraisal deposit from the investor's uh, 401k plan and then we order appraisal and start processing, normally closing about 30 days from there. So I'm gonna tell you about 30, 32 days from app to close of escrow is what it takes. So not much different than a regular mortgage loan. Um, <clears throat> couple things we talked about is what can derail a loan? Well, like I went back to the idea that a lot of investors are buying owner-occupied properties. And so then you might ask, well, how do you underwrite that? Well, we leave that up to the investor to give us a pro forma income and expense. And they should do their market analysis and be sure that the numbers they're giving us for expected rental income are appropriate for that neighborhood. So for example, um, the investor, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna work off the pro forma income expense the investor gives me. So let's say they give me $1,200 a month income and a variety of expenses for taxes, insurance, and so on. I'm gonna use that $1,200. And if it all goes according to oil, that should work. Where it can fall down or the check to the work is we have the property appraised and we ask that the appraiser do a rent comparable survey. What that means is the appraiser will go out and find three rental properties nearby and get a market rent. And let's say market rent is $1,000. We're gonna mm -hmm. use the unbiased appraiser's figure of 1,000, not the borrower's projection of 1,200. And sometimes that $200 a month difference, that's 2,400 a year in income, can impact the loan amount. Sometimes, you know, we're going along based on a 1,200 rental income and the appraisal is done and that's usually toward the end of the process and now it's a thousand bucks we might have to chop that loan back some so that it continues to cash flow so all i would say there is as an investor do your homework find as many market sources as you can talk to property managers and and different people in the business and find out what a solid rental figure is for that home um, Things that also hurt is surrounding property values are very low. Maybe a, pro maybe a property is very nice in a neighborhood. Let's say it's a $100,000 house, but everything around it is 50, 60,000. I don't wanna be financing the most expensive home in the neighborhood. I'd rather finance the least expensive home in a little nicer neighborhood than the, nice, the most expensive home in one that's, it's too far below. Because in other words, I don't wanna have my loan amount being equal to the purchase price of many homes around it. So um, do your homework there too. Just because a property is in wonderful condition, looks nice, um, make sure you check what the surrounding properties are and what the market really is for that so that you're not buying the most expensive home in the neighborhood. Right. Um, I, meant, I mentioned high crime before. I don't really need to go into that further. A couple sites though that as investors you might check our spot crime. I use Trulia quite a bit because it aggregates two or three different crime sites and puts them all into a nice crime uh, matrix. So that's what I'm going to ask you. Like, what are good? What are tools that you yeah well might use uh, for 
getting the rental income, property values, high crime, et cetera, et cetera? I look at a couple. Um, on the crime thing, I look at Trulia because that aggregates several different crime data sites into one. And so that's good. So the investor just needs to type the property address into the Trulia website. And there you go. Um, in terms of to point number two, um, I, I know, and I know it's not perfect, uh, but I look at Zillow and surrounding previous sales. I look at what the previous sales price was of this existing property. And that's typically found all over on the websites, Redfin, yeah. Max. Um, the bottom line is there's, there's a number of websites that'll give you a ballpark value of the values, but if you can get at what sales prices are, that's better. Some mm -hmm. states are non-disclosure states, so it's a little tough to get at that figure. But again, um, you just try to do your research and, and try to make sure that you're buying kind of in the middle of the market for where you are, basically. In the rent, um, how about that? The rent, um, and that's another one to gauge because there is some, there's some different sites that will say an estimate for rent, and sometimes yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, I know okay. there's a few sites. Um, other deal killers are poor condition. There's just, you know, there's issues with the property. You know, sure. it's uh, got foundation issues, and I'll make one note on this one. If you look at our parameters and investors who start to work with me will find that we show that we don't lend on properties built before 1940. I will tell you this, we can lend on properties built before that. And there's many properties over toward the eastern seaboard of the U.S. where, you know, 100-year-old properties are norm. We'll lend on those as long as they've been brought up to current condition in terms of electrical, plumbing, roofs. Everything's in good shape. We're good. So oftentimes a home inspection will be required to prove up condition. And it's probably not a bad tool for any investor to have one before they buy a property. But there are some properties that we're going to want to have a home inspection done in addition to the appraisal just to, just to be sure that it is what we hope. You know, we want to be lending on a good condition property. And the more problems with it, the investor's going to just be feeding that thing and chasing repairs. And that's not a very efficient way to make money either in the business. So again, if properties are focused on good condition, that helps eliminate some of those you know, ideas and getting into properties that maybe. Um, yes, makes sense. You know, what about debt yeah. service coverage ratio? So this is the driver. Once you, once we see that the property is at a good location and in good condition, this drives it because the cash flow from the property is going to pay back the loan. And so debt service coverage is all about how much debt a property can support. And I'm going to skip on to my next slide here in just a minute and touch bases on this because this drives everything debt service coverage investors mm -hmm. probably have heard of this but many who are maybe new to this haven't what that means is how much debt can a given property support pay all the bills pay all the debt and still have some excess cash flow so i'm going to use an example here and this was a, a real deal we've done purchase price was a hundred thousand dollars we lent sixty thousand on it and that's going to have a PI payment over a year's time of $4,221. Mm -hmm. 
So what can this property support? So we're going to go over here and in this case, the property generated $900 a month income. So we're going to plug this into a nice little formula here and an investor could use this on any property you chose to do an analysis on. I would use this tool. Um, you take your gross income for the year, 10-8, 12 months times 900 a month. We build in a 7% vacancy factor, which basically is equivalent to one month a year that the property would be vacant. And that's about normal. You can't assume that every property is going to be occupied 12 months a year, every year, year in and year out. So we build in a 7% vacancy. Taxes, whatever they're going to be, plug that in. $12.50 a month in this case. Insurance premium for a homeowner's policy was $600 a year. Maintenance. I use a standard $600 per $100,000 purchase price per year. If you want to put a little decimal point on there, all you got to do is take the purchase price of the home times 0 0.006. And that's mm -hmm. a maintenance factor we're going to allocate. Now, other investors, they may have a stronger, a bigger maintenance factor they may want to use. You know, maybe they say, well, I'm going to put $1,000 a year on this house. Hey, that's fine. But I am going to make sure there's some money allocated for maintenance. And that $600 per 100000 price seems to work. Um, this one, there was a management fee of 10% of gross income. So that's 1080 a month. I'm sorry, 1,080 a year. So the ratio is composed really of two components. You take your gross income, you subtract your expenses, and now you're down to net operating income. That net operating in this case was $6,514. And that number there needs to be at least 125% of the principal and interest payments. So if you go over there to the left side, DSCR equals NOI, net operating income, divided by annual debt service. So in this case, the NOI was $6,514. The debt service is $4,421. You divide the 65 by $4,421, and you get a 1.47, meaning in reality that the income is 147%. Of the right. Debt. Hey, that's good. Anything that's above... Anything above 125 or a 1.25 debt service qualifies with us. You know, stronger than that, great. Less sure. than that, it ain't going to work. And so sometimes you get into deals where the person wants a $60,000 loan, but the property won't support it, but it will support a $50,000 loan. Okay. I'll say, you know, Sally, I can't lend 60 on here, but I can lend 50. Could you do another 10,000 down payment? Oh, yes, I can. Okay. And a lot of investors will go ahead and, and take a smaller loan. Hey, it's better than writing a check for all cash and try to buy the thing outright, but it's still, it's going to cash flow positive. I don't want to finance deals that the investor has to feed the property every single month or every year. That's not an investment. That's a you're feeding something. That's not going to work. So we wanted a we wanted a winner. If it works good for the borrower, it works for us. So this debt service coverage, um, you can use it on any property you're going to do an analysis on. It just needs this is to awesome. It, it, Great it, tool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let me show you one. Yeah, let me ask you a question. So the twenty. So this is, and it looks like this has residential. With but we could use this for other types of properties too. Like commercial or 
yeah, let's look at this one. Here's one on a commercial. I, I financed a deal. It was, this was a commercial. So you're thinking, okay, now commercial, um, we're a 50%, we're 5-0. So the borrower puts half down on commercial. It's the same process. This one, uh, the purchase price was 600000 Loans three hundred. Um, this one had a triple net lease of five grand a month. Um, so their gross annual income on the right-hand side was sixty grand. I built in my seven percent vacancy, forty-two hundred dollars. This was triple that, so it's a little different. So I don't put anything in there for taxes because right. the tenant pays the taxes, the tenant pays the insurance, and the tenant pays the maintenance. But in this case, there was some maintenance outside of what the tenant. Um, I'm sorry, that, that there would be a component outside the lease. So we built in 3,600 there. Uh, there's no HOA fees. This is a commercial building. It's not a condo. And again, utilities, the tenant's paying them. So after all expenses, this is a pretty strong deal. Um, their net operating income was 47,400. So just go to the left of that, 47,400 divided by the 26,841 in annual principal interest payments. This one had a debt service coverage ratio of 1.76. Strong deal. That's a good deal. And it cash flows well. Yeah. So, so remember on commercial deals, we're going to look at 50% financing, but it's the same one and a quarter debt service coverage. Hey, if this was a vacation rental, for example, you know, on a residential property, all of those will do 60 grand gross income. Um, you know, it, you would have a few different things in there than this, but we're going to use the same model for a vacation rental as a long-term leased property either way. Um, okay. Let me ask a question. So yeah. I noticed the terms were 25 and 20. Yep. Is that pretty typical? Yeah, it is. Let me back up here and show you what we offer. Um, so our loan offerings on the residential are, again, look on the left side of your screen, the residential one family, one to four, will go up to 60%. We have a fixed rate term of 20 years, and I've got an adjustable rate of 25 years. So on both the commercial and the residential, we can do 25-year fully amortizing loans. Uh, the adjustables we tie to the one-year T-bill as our index. And then they're fixed for either three, five, or 10 years. There's no balloons on them. They're just fixed for that length of time. And then after, let's say someone takes the five-year arm, after five years, the rate will just adjust once a year out to year 25. On the three years, it's fixed for three years. Then it's just going to adjust once a year, beginning in year four, out to year 25. So they're straightforward. Um, so we have both fixed and adjustable rates. So and what do I use? What do I use for my if I'm back to the formula then if it's going to be adjustable? Mm -hmm. um, what do I use for the formula? So like on this one here on this residential deal, I based it on it was a 25 year loan at five and a half percent. Right now my three year adjustable is five and a half percent. So. The borrower could plug in five and a half on their model, or if they want to use our five-year arm, plug in five and seven-eighths. Those are a couple good programs that are in the fives in terms of interest rates. Mm. 
and they should use them as their model. And, and you go, well, what happened? You know, after five years, my payment's going to go up. Well, it could. It could stay the same or it could go down. But there's also nothing to say you can't raise the rate, rent on that tenant. So just because your rate might go up 1%, hey, you mean you're not going to raise the rent on a tenant after five years 1%? No, you're going to increase your rents as market rents. So investors who are savvy and have been in the business a while, they're not afraid of adjustable rates because there's many levers they can pull to offset an increase in their interest rate. But the biggest one being rent. So, um, yeah, so that's how it works. So you've got fixed and variable available. And uh, our, we keep our loans all in-house. So there again, you can always call up and find out the status of your loan at any time. Um, okay. So if there's anything in here that we want to double check on. You know, here's one thing. Condos, we finance a lot of condos. We like to see and look over on the right-hand side, HOA financials must be healthy. You know, this isn't so much a problem now, although it could become one. Back in 08, 09, 010, 11, there were a lot of people who couldn't make payments on their condos and townhomes. But long before they stopped making payments on those, they'd stop making their HOA payments. So then what would happen is the HOA, after so many of them would stop paying their HOA payments, wouldn't have enough money to replace air conditioners and replace the roof and redo the siding. So it's very important if you're looking at buying into a condo or townhome, you get copies of HOA financials because that really is the overlay of the financial health of that property. You're not just buying a property. If the HOA isn't healthy that is providing all the maintenance and the upkeep, that property is going to go downhill and, and there's nothing worse than losing value on a property and you can't do anything about it. See, the difference there is, you know, a single family home, you can repaint the house on a condo. You can't do that. It's the HOA that's got to do that. So, you know, there's an onus on the investor to make sure that the HOA financials are sound and we scrutinize those. That's part of our underwriting process to make sure that they're buying in a, HOA or a homeowner community that's sound financially that they can pay all the bills. Because if the HOA can't pay its bills, you know, that's going to certainly impact the values and everything else on those properties within the HOA. So again, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do your due diligence on those things. Makes and I a guess lot of sense. I'd, I'd say one thing, George, and that's if we offer any service, it's due diligence. You know, the component we provide in underwriting in terms of making sure it's a sound cash flow deal, the condition is good, the crime's low, um, HOA is sound, all those things, the investor is benefiting by our due diligence in our process. So um, it, it works good for both of us. Um, I think these are kind of the main ideas. Let's talk about, you know, we were having a short conversation the other day, George, about vacation rentals and markets while well, I have this slide up. Um, maybe we should talk about that just a little bit. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause like you, you had some good comments about how the market is doing. We were and how it just about how it's been impacted by COVID. It's pretty interesting. Could you yeah. share that? Yes. Um, we do a fair amount of vacation rental financing, people buying properties that they're going to lease out by the night or the week and they're buying a whole property and they're 
you know how it is, VRBO, Airbnb. Correct. So yeah. those properties have been pretty strong in this good economy. Um, okay. However, as you know, when COVID hit, people had stayed home, shelter in place. We're not flying. We're not going anywhere. Well, yeah, uh, I read some articles about that. It sounds like, yeah, it, exactly. That people were just not able to, they were mm -hmm. Airbnb reservations. So, 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 you know, that market got kind of soft here for a few months, but what we're seeing is something pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. People who are now coming out of their homes, everybody's been cooped up for so long. We all want to go somewhere, but we want to go somewhere safe. So right. the things I'm reading and what I'm finding out is people are willing to go rent a home that's just for them, husband, wife, maybe their friends, people they're comfortable with in their circle. Right. They're going to rent that home for maybe a week because they can be safe. They don't have to have um, interaction with other hotel guests or maids coming in and out of the room every day and things like that that could make an impact with the COVID situation. So what's happened, there's been a fairly dramatic turnaround in the vacation rentals in that people are much more willing to stay in one of those even than in a motel. Okay, yeah. so as an investor... That means that there's, there's value in those vacation rental properties because people mm -hmm. want to go where they feel safe, where they, you know, they feel comfortable, and then they have room to spread out, and, and then they don't have to worry. They don't have to go anywhere for a whole week if they want. They can stay in that property. So I, all I'm suggesting is the vacation rental market is, is coming back around. Uh, owners that I know have are booking strongly for July and August. Yep. Um, so. Again, we'll do a 50% of purchase price on a vacation rental. And, and I would say this on those. Do your due diligence. Most of those have been a vacation rental in the past, but some aren't. But make sure you really do your, uh, your due diligence on what a good vacation rental property can support, how much it can generate, and talk to a couple different management companies because management fees can range from 20 to 30 to 50% of gross income on vacation rentals, depending on the company. So uh, there again, it's wise to just do your shopping as a consumer for management companies as well as properties. Um, but uh, vacation rentals are a good piece of business. They can generate a lot of income. Um, they are seasonal to some degree, so you gotta realize that some months it's gonna be low, but right. overall through the course of a year, they do pretty well. So I. I I, I would say that that market seems to have come back to quite a good degree, George. That's interesting. Yeah, that I think. That, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's just interesting how it, the impact of COVID, and then just like you said, how it's come roaring back, and it makes sense when you when you think about it in the terms that you laid it out. Um, the other one point too, I think that I'd like to make is that right now too, um, some of the competition for properties from Again, I would call the retail investor, um, the people who are buying the home they're going to live in. Um, mm -hmm. They've been impacted enough from some of the job things and stuff that they've sort of backed away a little bit from taking a purchase or, or they're going to say, you know, I'm not sure my job is so secure. Let's hold off for right. another six months and see. Well, that is happening in a fair degree, but it's creating opportunities for investors who have 401k funds. Hey, 
They're not dependent on their job. That money is sitting there in that account ready to be deployed. Yes. So right now there is actually a little more opportunity in the market for investors buying properties because there's just not quite so much competition <laughs> for the retail investor. That's a good thing. That is. That's some yeah, that's, that's good insights there. Thanks, Roger. Um, I think if there's anything else in here that we need to cover, we've been doing this a long time. We lend coast to coast. Um, we've, we lend in every state except New York state and I have lending parameters. So any investor out there who has questions, they can certainly email me. I know George has my contact information and Mark as well. Um, we have an 800 number. What's the best way to get in touch with you? The 1-800 or the website or your email? Yeah, so there, you can call us, 1-800-908-8845. Um, our website, if you look down in the corner of this slide, it's myiralender.com. So you can just type in myiralender and you're probably going to hit, you're probably going to see us come up. But our website is myiralender.com. My email is roger at myiralender.com. And you can email or call me anytime. I'm here Monday through Friday, here to help and assist. Um, and my counterpart, Nick Conway, will be here. Uh, you can always work with Nick as well as me. Um, we're both here to take care of people and customers. That's great, Roger. Yeah, so that's roger at myiralender.com, 1-800-908-8845, or myiralender.com. So thank you so much for sharing all your expertise. It's been a fascinating um, presentation, Roger. Hey, I'm it's good, George. I'm glad um, to do this. And I really appreciate the opportunity that you have provided for me to share our platform with your investors and potential clients. And uh, I'm always happy to do so. So if you need anything else, just don't hesitate to reach out. Okay. Thank you so much, Roger. So great. Appreciate it. Take care. Have a great day, George. You too. Bye.